Well, amen. I hope you uh, were singing now because we're going to be singing for all of eternity. And so this is just a uh, practice for the coming day of eternal worship. Amen. Well, take your Bibles as you stand and prepare to stand for a little while. We're going to read all of chapter 24. Uh, You can find it in your pew Bible on pages 20 through 22. It will be a couple pages, 67 verses. We may have an intermission in the middle of this. Let us see the story of Genesis 24. What a privilege to hold the Word of God in our hands. What a privilege to hear God speak to us through His very words. Genesis 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. And the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed For your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her jar, water jar, on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please 
Give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He, was given him, he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when he was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath. When you have come to my clan, and if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and, he, and said, 
O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of the water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for you from the camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. And before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring, and she drew water, and I said to her, please let me drink. And she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank. And she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him, they ate and they drank and spent the night there. And when they rose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while. At least ten days after that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, And may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Baraloi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw And behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel 
and said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come, and what a story. A story of your providential guidance. A story of your providential care. Here you are, the Lord of the universe, and yet even down to the decision-making of our day, you have loving kindness, you have steadfast faithfulness. You show us that you care about the decisions of our lives. Lord, we pray now, open our hearts that we, we may see you in all your glory. Use your servant as he preaches your word and your spirit to open our hearts and let us see what this story of Isaac and Rebekah have for us and how it reveals your glory, your grace, your greatness. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I know what you are thinking. How is he ever going to get through 67 verses this morning in one sermon? It's not possible. It's not going to happen. How is it ever going to happen? I know what you're thinking, and here's what I hope to prove is prove you wrong as we look at this story here of a father finding a wife for his son. After Sarah's death here in Genesis 23, which we looked at last Sunday, Abraham is now very old. He's well advanced in years. He's faced with another tough situation that requires faith in God. Abraham's son Isaac is about 40 years old at this time and needs a wife. Now, not just for the usual reasons, but for the sake of the promises that God made to Abraham. I mean, how else will God's promises continue if Isaac isn't married? If Isaac doesn't find a wife, then God's promises to, to multiply his descendants through his son Isaac will come to nothing. And so finding a wife for Isaac is a big deal right now in the life of Abraham. This is a key moment in the redemptive plan of God as we have seen throughout the story of Abraham. It's a big deal at this moment in Abraham's life for, for finding a wife for his son is key now to carrying out the promises of God. So on one level, here's what you see in this chapter. It is about this, this covenant romance when a boy meets a girl and Isaac and Rebecca get married. But, but that's on one level. But behind it all, behind this covenant romance, is God working to accomplish His promises through the next generation. Now, as Chris said, Pastor Chris said, 67 verses, it's, this makes the longest chapter in Genesis. And what's interesting here is that this chapter records no great conflicts, no prophecies, no miracles, though many words are spoken to God, many words are spoken about God, no words are spoken by God himself in this chapter. 
And even though God says nothing here in this chapter, God's hidden hand is sovereignly working in and through the, the, quote, what we might consider the normal circumstances of people's lives to do one thing, to accomplish his purposes. This is called the providence of God. And that's what we see here in this story for finding a wife for Isaac. Notice the big idea here. Here's out of 67 verses. Here's what I want you to take away. Here's what I want you to see. Through his providence, God blesses the endeavor of Abraham's servant to find a wife for Abraham's son. The idea now of God being in control of everything that happens in life, everything that happens in history, the idea of God being in control of that is called providence. You say, well, what's what's providence? Well, in his book, Providence, John Piper defines it this way. God's providence is his purposeful sovereignty. And sovereignty means that God has not only the right, but God has the power to do what he wants for our good, but ultimately for his glory. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But God's providence takes all of this a step further, saying that God has a purpose in all that he does. For example, God says in Isaiah 46.10, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. So God isn't only powerful, God is also purposeful in all that he does. Therefore, we can now say that providence is God's purposeful action in all that happens in life in history. That's what we see happening behind the story here of Abraham finding a wife for his son Isaac. The story, if you noticed it, it begins with Sarah's tent, Abraham's wife. It begins with her tent being empty because of her death. In the last chapter, she died and we buried Sarah. We looked at that. So the chapter begins with that reality. The reality of death of Sarah. Her tent is empty. And it ends, if you notice, the very ending of the story ends with her tent now being filled again, occupied by Rebecca. But in between, covering all those many verses, is God's providence. And that's what Moses is emphasizing for us. Moses, the author, is emphasizing that it was God's providence that led the servant to the bride that God had already appointed for Isaac. And so from beginning to end through this story, God's fingerprints are all over it. That's what I want you to walk away and see here. All of this simply shows us that God's providence, it ensures the accomplishment of God's promises. And oh, what comfort that gives to our souls. What confidence that should bring to us. So let's look now at the faith of God's people in the providence of God working behind the scenes in the lives of his people to accomplish his purposes. And what we see here, number one, is the faith of a father. Where Abraham planned for God's promise. The overarching issue that this story seeks to resolve is the continuation of God's promise 
through the seed of Abraham, by which all the earth shall be blessed, ultimately through Jesus Christ. But God's redemptive plan isn't fulfilled in a day. In fact, it's being fulfilled over the course of history. And that requires faith on the part of us here. It requires faith on the part of God's people. And often this creates tension within our hearts. It creates a tension between acting and waiting for God to fulfill his plan, to accomplish his promises. Some of us here this morning, we struggle in waiting for God to act. And so we find ourselves kind of acting hastily in our own power, in our own wisdom to to force God's hand, to make things happen, much like Abraham did. And essentially what we do is we, we maximize our responsibility and at the same time, we minimize God's to a fault. Others of us here, we, we struggle with waiting too long. So we find ourselves just kind of passively waiting for God to give us a sign before we even take a step, before we move on. And, and essentially what we do there is we minimize our responsibility while maximizing God's to a fault. And as we've seen, Abraham, he made both of these mistakes. And this is why this particular example here in Genesis 24 is so helpful for us today. Abraham is not responsible to accomplish God's purposes or God's promises. Listen, he's not responsible to to create more offspring or secure more land all in his own power by his own devices. But Abraham is responsible to ensure that the next generation continues living in God's promises. Dads, that's our responsibility, by the way. It's Father's Day. That is part of our role and responsibility, is to equip and ensure that and teach that responsibility in our kids. That's what Abraham is doing here with his own son Isaac. And there were times, yes, as we have seen, when God told Abraham exactly what to do when it came to his promises. But here God doesn't do that. God doesn't even speak. And so Abraham devises a plan to find his son Isaac a wife. But I want you to notice something about the plan. It is completely in line with God's word. This plan is in line with the promises of God. Unlike the plan back with Hagar, where he tried to force God's promises to happen. He devised his own plan by his own intuition And it was a disaster. He made a mess of his life. But this plan is in line with God's word. It's not in contradiction with God's word or contradiction with God's plan. And this is where we see God's providence really working in tandem with Abraham's faith and even behind his faith. Notice this first point observation here. Abraham now entrusted with an oath the responsibility of finding a wife For his son Isaac to his chief servant. So after a long life, a blessing by God in verse 1, Abraham now plans for the next stage of God's promise with his son. And he recognizes, this is interesting. In fact, it's really key. He recognizes that marriage is essential for God's promises to continue. We live in a culture that is dismantling the idea of marriage, dismantling God's design for marriage. When marriage is actually the ordained institution by which God wants to 
perpetuate his promises and his plans to the next generation. And that is here what we see as well. And we see this in verses 2 through 4 where it says, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, we do not know for sure who exactly this servant is. But it's very likely, very plausible, that it is the same servant we learned about in Genesis 15 by the name of Eleazar. And so this matter of finding Isaac a wife is of such monumental importance to Abraham that he makes his servant swear with a very unique, and let's be honest, a very awkward oath. The phrase here, put your hand under my thigh. Abraham meant by that phrase exactly where you think he meant. He's touching Abraham's genitals. And commentators just kind of dance all around this. One example, one commentator writes, the thigh is a euphemism for the generative organ upon which the sign of circumcision was also placed. Right, we all use thigh as a symbol of procreation. No, nobody does. Aren't you glad we also shake hands to solemnize something? I know I am. Anyway, the point of this very awkward oath is nothing perverted, I assure you, but rather it is simply to emphasize to Abraham's servant here the the importance of him finding a wife for Isaac by which the promise of offspring may continue. Notice the second observation here. Abraham then demanded something of his servant, that Isaac's wife must not be a Canaanite, in that Isaac must not be taken out of the land of Canaan. Now, that brings up to mind a question. Why? Why does Abraham not want his son, in fact requires it, demanded it, his son not to marry from among the Canaanites? And I can assure you it's not because Abraham is a racist as some want to make him out to be here. Many great biblical heroes married interracially, including Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis. The reason that Abraham demanded that Isaac's wife must not come from the Canaanites is because the Canaanites were a very wicked people. They were idol worshipers who were going to be driven out of the land of Canaan because of their sin. In fact, you might remember back in Genesis chapter 9, Noah even pronounced a curse on the descendants of Canaan. And that curse is being lived out now by the present depravities of the Canaanites in which Abraham is living. And that curse would be upon them for generations to come. And so there would be no mixing of Abraham's offspring with these people who have set themselves apart from God, set themselves apart or against God even, and would surely draw his son Isaac away from God just as the wives did to King Solomon. Please understand something here. The Bible does not prohibit God's people from interracial marriages. 
The Bible warns against interfaith marriages. The Bible warns against marrying someone who is outside of the family of God. Who does not share the same faith in God as you do. Who doesn't center their life on God's promises as you claim to do. And all of this becomes more explicit later when when Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel, are about to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and God tells them that they must not intermarry with unbelievers in the land because it will lead to their own apostasy. It will draw them away from God. Even to this day, you see it happen all the time. The same concern is why the Apostle Paul commanded the believers at the church at Corinth, specifically to those widows, to marry, quote, only in the Lord. Why? Because marriage matters in carrying out the plan of God, the promises of God in the next generation. And an unequally yoked marriage can sabotage covenant faithfulness for years to come. This is why Abraham makes his servant promise that he will only take a wife from my country and my kindred, and neither would Abraham allow Isaac to be taken out of the land of Canaan. Why? Because his very presence in the promised land was a living declaration that the land would belong to Abraham's descendants. And so significantly, Isaac, he is never once permitted to leave the promised land, even in a time of famine. Isaac himself, he embodied God's promises of a people in a land. And then third observation here, Abraham believed God would sovereignly prepare the way for his servant to find a wife for his son. Again, Abraham is old. He's well advanced in years. And his path of faith now, what is required of him now, is to send his servant on what seemed like a mission impossible. The servant would have to travel hundreds of miles and find a bride from Abraham's own people, and then he would have to talk her in to coming back with him to the promised land to be a wife for someone she had never met before. And so the servant asked a question. It's a good question he asked in verse 5. Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? It's a rather important question. And Abraham said to him in verse 6, See to it that you do not take my son back there. In other words, Abraham's faith here is the answer to all the what-if questions that could be raised in regarding to this mission. When it comes to things that God's telling us to do, we know we are to do these things. God's calling us to go out and live for him. We have all kinds of what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. And they're all legitimate questions. And 99% of the time, the answer to all the what ifs questions in our lives is faith in God. Just simple, trust and obey. Period. That's what you see with Abraham here. It's beautiful. When he tells his servant in verse 7, look at it. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. Listen, 
He, he, that is God, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And so what stands out above all else in these words is Abraham's faith in God. The first time we heard Abraham speak, he was lying to Pharaoh about his wife. This is the last time we hear Abraham speak and he is declaring here his unwavering faith in God when he tells his servant he will send his angel before you. In other words, he will go before you and he will prepare the way providentially. It's beautiful. In essence, Abraham believed that God's unseen hand would do all that is needed to accomplish his promises. There are no miracles in this story as we usually think of miracles. Rather, God will simply bring about the finding of Isaac's bride through the normal events of life. As J.I. Pactor says, believers are never in the grip of blind forces like fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust and obey and rejoice. And so the whole success here of this mission will rest in God's providential intervention by his angel going before them. According to verse 8, if the woman is not willing to come back, then the servant is just, he's released from his oath. And what's interesting about all that is Abraham does not lay out a quote plan B. There is no plan B in this story. There is one plan. Trust God. There's no alternatives. He doesn't complain, contemplate any alternatives for finding a wife in case this plan fails. Abraham entrusts here in this moment the entire mission to the providence of God. He fully believed that God's providence would accomplish his promises in this matter. This is the way God works, by the way, day in and day out in our lives, even today. Kent Hughes adds these words. He says, such a God, of course, is great beyond our imaginings because he maintains all of life. He involves himself in all events. He directs all things to their appointed end while rarely interrupting the natural order of life. And so it is with profound faith that Abraham's servant says what he says in verse 9 here. He put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. So let us look at Abraham's servant, his faith in this matter. We see the faith, number two, of a servant. What Eliezer, he relied on God's guidance. Now, obviously, this part of the story takes a huge chunk of the chapter. And so we're just going to summarize it. And you're like, oh, thank God. Yes. But notice in verse 10. We read in verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Naor. Now what's interesting there, this journey, it, it, it is a, it's hundreds of miles to go from the land of Canaan all the way back to Mesopotamia. And several months journey, and it's all compressed into one single verse here in verse 10. Moses spares us the details of this journey. Why? Because Moses wants you and I to focus on God's providence here, working behind the scenes, 
in preparation, in leading, in guiding Abraham's servant. That's what we're supposed to see. So notice it. Number one, Eleazar prayed for a sign of God's guidance, and he praised God for his faithfulness in sending Rebecca as the chosen wife. Now, if you're on a mission to find a wife, where's the most logical place to go? Some dating app? <laughs> they didn't have dating apps back then. So the next best place you would go is you would go into the city. Why? Because that's where all the people are. The most logical place for his servant to go is into the city and start asking around about all the available women that are there. Who's not married? And you would inquire that of the fathers. But this servant, notice, instead of going into the city, the servant positioned his camels outside of the city by a well of water at the time when the women go out to draw water. And so the mission, here's what you need to understand, is not solely about finding any bride for Isaac. The mission is about finding a bride that God has already appointed for Isaac, already selected for Isaac. And so the servant goes to a a place of uncertainty, but to the place of opportunity for God now to sovereignly work out his plan and promises. And so with his camels positioned by the well of water, the servant's very first action, notice it, do not miss this, was what? It's a humble prayer for success. He prays in verse 12, look at it, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And so Abraham's servant, he now even recognizes that that nothing will happen unless God brings it to pass. Therefore, he prays that God will bless his efforts in finding God's chosen bride. The servant then asks that God will also confirm the chosen bride through a, a remarkable sign. Not only will she offer to give him a drink, but she will also offer to water his camels. And let me tell you, that is no small task. No small task. In case you don't know, camels, they drink a lot of water. I mean a lot of water. And Abraham's servant has how many of camels? Ten camels. They just journeyed across the wilderness, which means they are thirsty camels. One commentator points out a camel that has gone a few days without water can drink as much as 25 gallons. Ancient jars used back then for drawing water usually held no more than three gallons. So do the math. We're not talking about her going to get just an extra jar of or two of water. We are talking about her going back and forth, back and forth, to the well, to draw water some 80 to 100 times. This, a woman that would volunteer to do this would be remarkable in kindness and hospitality. Oh, would she have a servant's heart. And so don't miss what Abraham's servant prays then at the end of verse 14 here. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. You see, this servant, Abraham's servant, he believes that the Lord has already ordained, appointed, selected the woman who will be Isaac's wife. This is an extremely high view of God's providence working to accomplish his promises. What we see next is then an amazing answer to prayer. 
Now, although the servant doesn't know it yet, we the readers, we are now introduced to the woman who's going to be Isaac's wife. And you see this in verses 15 through 21. I won't read that passage there again, but what's striking there in those verses is the first impression that Rebecca makes to the servant. She's a beautiful virgin who's hardworking and hospitable. And so it's no wonder the servant just stood there in silence and watched, wondering to himself, could this be the one that God has chosen? Is she the one? The servant's heart, man, surely it must have been racing as he pulled out his bridal gifts and asked whose daughter she was in verses 22 and 25. And and when the servant hears that, that Rebecca. It's now from Abraham's family. He's overwhelmed with gratitude for God's faithfulness. And and what does he do? He responds in worship in verses 26 and 27. It says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And so what a great example we have here for how we should respond to, to God providentially working to accomplish his purposes. We ought to respond with, with humble worship. He simply bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. And by the way, by the way, please don't think this. God's providence is not merely back there in Bible time stuff. Don't think, oh, that just, that's so cool that that happened in the story here. That's so neat that it only happens in the story here. Listen, Christian history and biographies are filled with stories of God's hand, hidden hand, working behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes and plan. And if you would just to take time to look closely enough in your own life, you will begin to see evidence of God working behind the scenes in your own life as well. And when we do, our response is to simply stop and pause with humble adoration and worship God for what He has done to accomplish His plan and His purposes in our own lives. Number two, Eliezer refused to accept Laban's hospitality until he had fulfilled his responsibility to Abraham. And so feeling blessed by the providential encounter with Rebecca, Abraham's servant now arrives at her house. He meets her family, including her older brother, Laban. Now you need to know something about this dude, Laban. Laban was a man who loved money. So immediately most of us here can identify with him, right? And so he immediately, what's interesting, he immediately notices what about Rebecca? The bling that she's wearing. He immediately notices all the bling and the gold that she's wearing. He immediately sees the camels that Abraham's servant owns. And Laban, in seeing this, he is calculating, jing, 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 all the wealth of this visitor. And, of course, if you know anything about Jacob's story with Laban later on in Genesis, then Laban's greed here will not surprise you. 
And so Laban greets Abraham's servant with this pious-sounding language in verse 31 when he says, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and the place for the camels. But Abraham's servant, he refuses to eat until he can state his business for coming and fulfill his responsibility to his master. And so Laban responds in verse 33, speak on. And at this, Abraham's servant launches into a, a rather long retelling of why he has come, why he has made this trip. And you see that in verses 34 through 49. What's interesting about his speech or his retelling is that there's no flattery. There's no pressure. Abraham's servant is not trying to twist Rebecca's family's arms. He's not trying to do any of that. The servant merely tells of his oath to his master. He simply tells about Abraham's faith that the, that the Lord will provide. He tells about God's providential leading to Rebekah. And all of this is simply to make clear that God is the one who is guiding in these events. So that they would now consent to Rebekah becoming Isaac's wife. Remember something here. God's promise to Abraham was what? You go back to Genesis chapter 12, and we already learned, we've seen it repeated numerous times. God's promise was that Abraham would become a nation living in the promised land and also would be blessed by God so that they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That was God's promise to Abraham from the beginning. And God ordained that promise, but he also ordained the means of its fulfillment. And that means God is the one in this particular story who is working out all the details. God is the one working behind all the decisions in this story toward the glorious end of accomplishing his promises to Abraham. And so, folks, when you read the story, don't think that's an accident. That just happened. No, it's not by accident. It's not by coincidence to hear the response of Laban and her father. In verses 50 and 51, look what they say. The thing has come from who? It's come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. And so God's amazing providence could not be denied here. Both the father and the brother agreed to the marriage. And so what seemed like in the very beginning an impossible mission has now been made possible by who? By Abraham's servant? No. He's just, he's just the tool. He's, he's the means by which God uses. He's the servant in the story. This has all been made possible by God himself. And in response, Abraham's servant worshiped the Lord again, bowing himself to the Lord or to the earth before the Lord. And according to verse 53, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly Ornaments, And this brings us now to the faith of a bride. And here's what we see. Rebecca followed God's call. So after a night of feasting, a night of celebrating, Abraham's servant rises in the morning and he says to Rebecca's family in verse 54, send me away to my master. 
But despite the servant's great generosity, Rebecca's family hesitates at this moment. We read in verse 55, her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days, and after that she may go. So what's going on here? What's up with that? On the one hand, they, they give their blessing that Rebecca can go, but now Laban and her mother, they, they're not so sure about this on second thought. In fact, knowing Laban's greed, it's very possible that he's scheming here for more gifts by asking Abraham's servant to stay longer. Stay another 10 days. So perhaps 10 days will become 20 days. 20 days become 60 days, 100 days. And we know that's what he did to Jacob later on. And so Laban wants Abraham's servant to stay 10 more days, but, but Abraham's servant does not want to stay any longer. In fact, Abraham's servant was steadfast on leaving. And so he says in verse 56, do not delay me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away that I may go to my master. And God honored the servant's resolve because the family's attempt to, to stonewall him actually became another occasion now for God's providence to work through the public declaration of Rebecca's faith. And this is so beautiful. They, they put the decision to Rebecca. And she now responds with incredible faith here in verses 57 and 58. Look at it. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. I will go. Put, put yourself in her shoes. Notice Rebecca's faith here in God's providence. Rebecca willingly returned with Abraham's servant and became Isaac's wife, continuing the covenant promises made to Abraham. Again, Rebecca's faith here is just incredible when she said, I will go. Because basically her family is asking her, will you leave the only family you've ever known? Will you go to a land that you've never seen? And will you marry a man who you've never met? And her answer is, yes, I will go. Her response here, it indicates that she trusts God and she believes God's promises. And in faith, she is willing to go in the same way that Abraham, many years back in Genesis chapter 12, when he obeyed God's call to leave his family and go to the promised land, what we see here is a replica of that. Rebecca's doing the same thing. Rebecca is following in Abraham's footsteps of, by leaving her family to go to the promised land to become Isaac's wife. One pastor put it this way. Rebecca recognizes the providence of God in this situation. Not as something that dooms her, but that an opportunity offering her great blessing. And oh, will she be blessed because of her faith. Before leaving, her family actually speaks a blessing over her. In verse 60, when they say, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And that comes true. In fact, that is the same blessing the Lord spoke over Isaac 
in Genesis 22. So once again, we see the providence of God at work in the same blessing giving to both Isaac and Rebekah. And now finally, we come to the moment you've all been waiting for when Isaac and Rebekah meet for the very first time. Look at it here in verses 63 and 65. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. And so she took her veil and covered herself. Now, lest you think there are no romantic stories in the Bible, these verses are actually worded in such a way to suggest that Isaac and Rebekah's eyes met at the same time. He's meditating out in the field, and he looks up and sees the camels coming. She looks up, and from some distance, their eyes meet for the first time. Was it love at first sight? What do you think? Do you believe in love at first sight? You decide. Here's what we do know. We know that this was a marriage made in heaven, all by the providence of God. Look what it says in verses 66 and 67. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And by entering the tent of Sarah, his mother, Isaac's deceased mother. Moses is telling us something here. He's telling us that Rebekah is now the new matriarch for God's chosen people. In other words, in God's providence through this story, the baton has now been passed from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. God's promises will now be carried out in Abraham's descendants and ultimately in Jesus Christ. And so what a wonderful, beautiful story we have here. All 67 verses. And on one level, it's a beautiful story of a boy meets girl, a beautiful story of of love at first sight, but on a much grander level, this story is about a marriage made in heaven because of God's providence working behind the scenes in the lives of God's people. Now that begs the question, how should we respond to all that? When you leave here this morning, you walk out that door, what does it mean for you? Two things summed up in one sentence. Look at it in your notes. Here's the takeaway. Praise God for his providence and trust God for his guidance. Listen to me. It is all too easy to go through life, this life, and completely miss God's providence working behind the scenes. Sometimes we we just assume that stuff happens in life. We assume just stuff happens in history. But this story is showing us something here. This story is showing us that that life doesn't just happen, folks. 
History is not some chaotic sequence of of random events, but rather the unfolding of God's sovereign plan of redemption. That's that's such a comfort, especially when it comes to the the current state of our country and even our world right now. And so what a comfort it is to remind ourselves that even now God is accomplishing His promises and His purposes in the world today. And thankfully, this also means that, that our lives, your life today, listen, it's our lives are not ruled by chance. Our lives are not ruled by fate, but rather by God's providence working to accomplish something in your life. To accomplish His will, His perfect will, His purposes, His plan in your life. And so what a comfort to know, to walk out of here and know that everything that happens in our lives, good, bad, ugly, you name it, happens for a reason. It's not by accident. This is why Paul can write what he does in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, and 18, where he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. This is why he can write now in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. So praise God for his providence. Listen, it is God's providence that ensures the accomplishment of his promises for our good and ultimately for his glory. And God is always faithful to his promises. God is always faithful to his purposes. He is always faithful to his people. Our challenge here is to be faithful to God. Our challenge is to trust God's providence and to trust his guidance in our lives as he works behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose in our lives. In other words, We are to walk out of here and we are to practice what we are told in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Listen to what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths just as he did for Abraham's servant. With your heads bowed. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your providence. Help us to appreciate and even to take comfort in your providence working behind the scenes in the world and in our lives to accomplish your redemptive plan. Help us to walk by faith in you, trusting you to lead us and guide us as we follow you and seek to obey your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.